one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, let me add my welcome to Angela's. Uh, Angela, I love, this, I love the smoothie store. I was thinking about one of my own uh, asking for a friend's that I saw, which was, uh, if I put strawberries in my chocolate milkshake, does it count as a breakfast smoothie? And I thought, yeah, it, it probably should. It probably should, right? Uh, but we're so glad you're with us. Uh, starting a brand new series today, asking for a friend. And I could not be more excited about this. Uh, you know, asking for a friend is a phrase we use in our society when there's a question that we want to ask, that, that we, we carry with us, but we kind of don't know if it's okay to ask. Or, or we don't want to be the one asking, or maybe we might even be a little bit nervous about what the answer might be. And so we put it out there, asking for a friend. Uh, and that's what this series is all about. We're going to be asking some of those really important questions in life and faith. Uh, questions like, how, how can there be a good God and suffering in the same world, right? How, how can we reconcile that? Or how about, uh, uh, what good is Christianity? Isn't, isn't religion just irrelevant, outdated? What, what good is Christianity? And, and another important one, uh, if a cookie falls on the ground, it's only there for three seconds, is it still germ-free? Yes, the answer is yes on that. You're going to learn a ton uh, in this series. But these are actually really important questions. And today we're going to ask one that is uh, near and dear to my heart, and that is the question of this. Uh, can I love Jesus and love science? Can, can I believe in Jesus and still believe in science? Or are these things actually opposed to one another? As someone in our church once asked me, uh, Aaron, don't I have to choose whether I'm going to believe in science or believe in God? And it's really an important question that a lot of sincere people uh, don't know what to think about. Right? They, they're not sure what to do with this question. What is the relationship between faith and science? And I want to tackle that with you today in a really kind of honest way. I want to start with this, though. Uh, the Bible seems to encourage uh, this kind of observation, this kind of study of the world around us. Look with me at Psalm 19. It says this, The heavens declare, and I love the word here in the, in the Hebrew. This word means to scratch out like on a stone tablet. Right? The heavens scratch out on a stone tablet the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Isn't that interesting? The heavens, the stars, the cosmos, they tell us something about God's glory. Or how about this from the New Testament, the book of Romans? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse being understood from what has been made. It seems that the scriptures actually encourage a kind of scientific inquiry. And yet, and yet, so often in our world, Christianity is perceived as being anti-science. Why is that? Well, there's this notion that goes around that religion is, is very, very old and science is very, very new. Um, that's that thousands of years ago, human beings were just less intelligent or more ignorant than we were. Th and uh, so they invented religion as a way of explaining how the world works. And that today we are much smarter now. And so we don't need religion anymore. We have science to explain things. This is kind of this idea in the world. But C.S. Lewis, who is actually a scholar of ancient mythology, says that this is simply not the case. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. Listen to what he says. He says, Ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is 
and how it came to be there. Now, why would he say ever since men were able to think? Well, because women have always been able to think. No, look, Lewis wrote this over 80 years ago. This is the same C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Uh, he wrote this over 80 years ago when inclusive pronouns were not the norm. I mention it only so it doesn't get in the way of his basic argument because I actually think that Lewis's argument here is one of the most profound I've ever read. Lewis goes on to say this. He says, and very roughly two views have been held. First, there's what is called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist and have always existed. Nobody knows why, and that, and that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. That's the materialist view. The other view, Lewis says, is the religious view. According to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind that, than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious, it has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. But then Lewis summarizes his point this way, and this is, the, this is the punch, don't miss this. He says, do not think that one of these views is old and one is new. They have both been around as long as people can think. Now, a lot of people in our day think uh, Aaron, hasn't science proven that what Lewis calls the materialist view is correct? That the universe is just a machine and that God does not exist? I, I want to look at that question. That's what I want to dive in. And just a quick confession up front. Uh, I am not a scientist, okay? Those of you who are, uh, I you've already forgotten more science than I've ever learned in my life, right? Uh, my training is in psychology and philosophy and theology. Those are my areas of study. But today, uh, I'm going to lean on a number of other thinkers who are scientists, who are experts in this field to help us frame this up. And so what I want to do with the time we have is I want to look at five questions, five questions that can help us answer what is the relationship between science and faith. Now, I have taught on this subject twice before, and some of these points uh, I've taught on before, and it may sound familiar, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, but this is really important stuff that we're going to review together today, and I hope it will serve you. First thing, first question is this. Is science really the only way to know about something? Is science really the only way to know about something? A lot of us will remember learning about something called the scientific method. Uh, this method is about performing uh, uh, tests, making observations, and then drawing conclusions, right? That's the scientific method. I remember learning about this in my biology class in ninth grade, and my project for the year, I got to do a project that took the whole year. My project was on recombinant DNA in E. coli strain JM101. I sound pretty smart right now, don't I? I know nothing else about biology except this. But here's recombinant DNA. This is where you could take the DNA from one organism, put it in another organism, and the traits of the first organism would be carried over into the second. Isn't that cool? So uh, what we did is we, we took a, a kind of bacteria that was allergic to milk sugar, allergic to lactose, and, and then we had this other kind of bacteria that loved milk sugar, and we took its DNA and put it back in the one that was allergic. Uh, we called it the ice cream experiment. You kinda, anyway, okay, so, uh, and, and what was amazing is then the bacteria that was 
previously allergic to milk sugar could now thrive because of this new DNA it had, recombinant DNA. It was amazing. So our teacher asked us to draw some conclusions, and, and I raised my hand because I'm a model student. I said, I, I got an application. I said, we could take the DNA from the allergic bacteria, put it in my sister, and then I would never have to fight over the ice cream at home. I told you I was a pretty model student. And uh, the teacher's response was interesting. Listen to how she responded. She said, Aaron, I suppose we could do that. The question is, should we do that? We could do that, but should we do that? You see, science can answer the could question, but science could not answer the should question. Science, by its nature, is about mechanics. It can tell us how something works, how something happens. It can even tell us how we can cause that something to happen. But it can never tell us if it should. There's a guy named John Polkinghorn. Uh, He is a Cambridge physicist and Anglican priest. And you thought your job was hard. Uh, I think this guy is quite possibly the smartest guy writing on this topic of science and faith alive today. John argues that science can tell us a lot, but it cannot tell us everything. He says, take, for example, the teapot boiling in my kitchen. You might ask, why is the water boiling? And of course, the answer would be, well, because heat energy is being produced from the combustion of gas and oxygen molecules, and that heat energy is conducted through the metal and then absorbed into the water molecules, rising to a boiling point where the hydrogen and oxygen molecules separate and form a water vapor. That's what you would have said, right? Or the answer to the question, why is the kettle boiling, might simply be because John wants some tea. You see, science can tell us what, science can tell us how, but science can never tell us why. Polkinghorne argues that science is designed to tell us the what and the how of the universe operations, but only faith can answer the questions of why and for what purpose. Is science the only way to know something? No. Science offers us empirical knowledge, but it cannot offer us moral knowledge. It cannot offer us personal knowledge, nor can it offer us spiritual knowledge. It is hugely important, but it is not singular in its ability to offer us knowledge. Second question is this. Hasn't science proven that the universe has no purpose? One of my favorite things to read about, I'm a little bit nerdy on this, is about the size and the expansion of the universe. You ever read articles about this? In fact, one of my old neighbors in Pasadena, California, we were living there, he worked for JPL. Uh, He had three post-doctorate degrees. I don't even know what that means, but the dude was smart. And he was uh, working with a group on the Hubble telescope that they had pointed into the darkest corners of space, and they were measuring the age and rate of the expansion of the universe. That's what they did. So I asked him, I said, well, tell me about this. And he said, well, actually, they now think, they used to think that the universe was slowing. They now think the universe is expanding at an ever faster and faster rate. And because it's accelerating, because it's spreading, it's now bending into the shape of a taco which I always like to say that when I tell this story, which is proof that God's favorite food is Mexican food, right? It's just, but it's, a, a, it's in the shape of time. Can you imagine that? Just get your mind. But there's this interesting notion that goes around 
that you see the universe is so big, it's so vast, and because it's so big and so vast, and because human beings are so small and so tiny, that really humanity is insignificant. That we are at best an accident with no real purpose. You hear this kind of thinking in writings like those of the famous physicist Carl Sagan. And again, faith was not something to which Sagan ascribed. Listen to what he said. He, he wrote this. We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner in which there are far more galaxies than people. Now notice the words here. Insignificant, humdrum, lost, tucked away, forgotten, these are not scientific terms, are they? These are terms of meaning. These are terms of significance. The idea behind statements like this is that somehow science, by showing how immense and vast the universe is, has shown us that little tiny human beings do not have unique dignity and worth in the ways that faith is taught. But the idea that there's this this contrast between the immensity of nature and the tininess of human life isn't anything new. People have been talking about this idea for a long time. In fact, listen to how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You see, the psalmist takes the very same data, the very same idea as Carl Sagan, but he comes to a completely different conclusion. God, the psalmist thinks, God, when I think of your greatness, of the heavens and the tininess of human beings, I am kind of in awe that you care for us. And then he goes on, and yet, God, you have created human beings with glory and honor. You have crowned them, made them something like transcendent beings. See, what the psalmist knows is that human beings are invested with a kind of divine image. They have the capacity to learn and to create. They have the weight that comes from being moral agents in this world, from being able to make decisions and be responsible for them, being able to care for one another and care for creation. And when we think about this, it's kind of staggering. Just as a way of illustration, how many of you all have grandkids? Oh, raise your hands. Oh, come on. Own, own it. Be proud. Be proud. How many uh, grandkids? All right. Of, of, now, of those of you who have grandkids, how many know that your grandkid is smarter and better looking than all the other grandchildren in the world? Come on. Just own Right? Yeah. You know this, don't you? You know this. Now, why is it that we feel this way? Because, you see, when, when we hold that child in our hands, when we look at that child, we know that this is not merely a blob of tissue. It's not just a collection of jiggling atoms. We know that this is a being that has been created with glory and with honor. That's why we celebrate the life of every child. Every child. John Ortberg writes this. He says, any worldview that cannot account for the inescapable dignity and value of human beings must at the end of the day be found wanting. Any worldview 
that cannot account for the inescapable dignity and value of human beings at the end of the day must be found wanting. Hasn't science proven that the universe has no purpose? Far from it, far from it. Question number three. Aaron, isn't it impossible to be a scientist and believe in God? Isn't it impossible to be a scientist and believe in God? Uh, my first job, I mentioned we lived in Pasadena. My first job out of college, uh, even though I was a psych- psychology and philosophy major, was working at the Caltech Library. Y'all know Caltech? Uh, okay, so Caltech in the research library. And I had the privilege of interacting with some of the brightest, most brilliant scientific minds in the world. It was incredible. But what was so amazing to me about these folks was... Uh, just how alive faith was in so many of them. You might be surprised, but there were multiple Christian communities on the campus of Caltech, multiple leading scientists who profess faith in God. Now, the reason we find that surprising is that there's this idea out there that to be a scientist means that you must be an atheist, that you must believe that there is no God. But it's really quite interesting uh, that the opposite seems to be true. In fact, in 1916, uh, the American psychologist James Luba conducted the very first survey of scientists in America. And he asked them a number of questions, but one of the questions he asked was this. He said, uh, do you believe in a God who actively communicates with humanity? Do you believe in a God that actively communicates with humanity, at least through prayer? And, And guess what? 40% of them said yes. Yes, I believe in that kind of God. Four out of 10 scientists in 1916. Now you might say, Aaron, that was a long time ago. Uh, There has been a lot of science in the last 102 years, and you would be right, 103 years, I guess, now that we're in 2019. I can do math. Uh, But here's what's interesting. They redid the same exact survey in 1997, and guess what percentage of scientists professed faith? 40%. In spite of a century's worth of scientific advancement, there is no change whatsoever in the scientific community in terms of the number of leading scientists who still profess faith in God. See, the truth is that we need not fewer Christians in the science fields. We need more than ever. I love reading about all the science advancements. I mean, the stuff in genetics right now, is it is mind-blowing what is possible. But just as science can only tell us what's possible and not what is necessarily good, we will need more Christians in the field of science helping answer the questions of ethics and morality and what should we do with this technology. So quick side note, middle schoolers, high schoolers, if you've thought about going into the science fields, that is a good, right, and God-given calling. And I hope that you will pursue that and use the gifts he's given you in the field of science for good. Question number four, doesn't science disprove Genesis and the Bible's account of creation? Some of you have been saying, waiting for this question right here. This is where the rubber meets the road for many of us, isn't it? This is the place of real struggle. Uh, There are folks who want to take seriously the the scientific discoveries of our day, but they, they don't know how to square that with their understanding of the scriptures. How can we speak of the Bible as the inspired and authoritative word of God and also understand scientific advancements? Well, one of our core motivations here at Lake Forest is that we would learn to be good students of the Bible. 
Uh, we believe the Bible to be God's primary authoritative revelation to us. It is God's inspired word, which means that we think it's the authority on the subjects on which it teaches. But the important emphasis is on that last phrase, what it teaches. You see, to be a good student of the Bible, we have to recognize that the Bible doesn't answer every question we bring to it. Rather, the Bible has its own set of questions that it is trying to answer. It, I, I was thinking, it's kind of like this. Imagine for a minute uh, if, if my wife were to send me an email, right, this Valentine's Day. And imagine in this email she was to write a poem to me uh, just describing my, my charming uh, good looks, right? Uh, and, she, and let's say that she wrote about me uh, being uh, the doppelganger, the, the, the near twin of Adam Levine, right? Like just, uh, you know, even with my shirt on, I bear his good, good, good looks, right? Now, let's set that email aside. Let's say she wrote me a separate email about the kids' sports calendar for this weekend, which necessitates 48 hours in a single day just to get to all the activities, right? Imagine that she sends me, oh, who's taking the kids to this? Who's taking kids to that? You see, I would read those two emails very differently, right? They are both emails, but they're both written for different purposes. Uh, we know this from, like, from the Gospels as well. Luke tells us, the Gospel writer, that he writes, he says, look, I have talked to eyewitnesses of these accounts. I am writing a kind of history of Jesus. But then we pick up the Psalms and we read poetry and, and song, and, and we know instinctively that we're to read that differently. One last example, this would be uh, from Harry Potter. If I were to pick up a Harry Potter novel, hoping to find a recipe for cherry pie, I'm going to be gravely disappointed, right? I might find a recipe for butterbeer, but Harry Potter is not a cookbook. In the same way, in the same way, when we come to the Bible and to the book of Genesis, we have to ask, what questions is Genesis trying to answer? Genesis was likely written around 1,200 to 1,500 years before Jesus. And the predominant view in that day amongst the Egyptians and the Canaanites, those were the people around God's people, the primary worldview at that time was that the universe was simply the product of chaos and uncontrollable forces. And so it's into this context that the book of Genesis is written. And its primary purpose is to show that God is the one in control of creation. All right, will you all indulge me on a quick nerdy moment? I don't have this in my notes, but I think we have time for this. this oh, there's another account, just to kind of illustrate this second. There's another creation account, and it's actually uh, found in a poem. Uh, it's more like a rap song at the end of the book of Job. Y'all remember Job? Guy goes through, literally goes through hell, and then God comes to him at the end. And, and Job and God are having this argument. And Job's gets kind of reading God the right act, and God says this to Job. He says, Job, listen, were you there at the beginning of the world when I tamed Leviathan? Do you all know this? Uh, he says, now Leviathan was one of the Canaanite gods of chaos that plays a role in the Canaanite creation story. In the ancient world, gods were both agents in creation, but they were also part of creation. And what we see is that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is above creation. 
He is not a part of creation. He predates creation. And so he says to Job, literally in his rap song, he says, were you there when I put a hook in Leviathan's mouth and led it around like a pet bird, like a little girl in the house? Job is humble to realize how great this Yahweh. Okay, nerdy moment over back. That's exactly what's happening here, right? Everyone thought that the gods were a part of this creation, that they were subject to chaos as well. But what the Bible says is that the one true God is sovereign. He is over creation. He is not subject to it. And here's what's really interesting about the creation story in Genesis. They aren't concerned so much with how God created, but with the fact that God created. Okay, Aaron, I see your point. I get this whole Leviathan, okay, all that. But doesn't the Bible say God created the world in seven days? I mean, what do I do with that? Especially when my friends or my professors are are kind of making fun of what they perceive to be the Bible's ignorance. Well, most people who dismiss the Bible have never really studied this very deeply. And so I want to give you just a quick summary of how Christians take these Genesis passages and science seriously. So we're ready for this. Uh, Bear with me. This will just take two minutes. Uh, The real crux hinges on this word day. The word day in the Genesis account. Uh, there are, the word day is the word yom, where we get yom kippur. And just like in English, this can mean a 24-hour period, or it can mean something much broader, something much bigger. Like we say, well, you know, back in the day, we're not talking about 24 hours, we're talking about a period of time, right? So there are three basic Christian views on how to read this word day. Uh, the first is what you might call the young earth creation view. This is the view that the the universe and the earth and the world are are relatively young and that the word day in Genesis means a literal 24-hour period. Many of you are familiar. This This is a common belief among Christians and it's a biblical view. The second view is what's called old earth creation. In old earth creation, uh, the word day is seen as a longer season of time. The the world is, is billions, millions, billions of years old. Uh, and what Genesis talks about when it talks about day is these long extended periods of time. That's old earth creation. And then there's a third view, and you might not be familiar with this one. I, I think this is really interesting. This is called the framework view. In the framework view, the word day is, is a literary device pointing to God's purpose in Genesis. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Uh, you might be familiar with the seven days of creation. Day one, God created light. Day two, sky, water. Day three, land, right? But there is a parallel between day one and day four, between day two and day five, day three and day six. Do you see the connection? Day one, God creates light. What are, what are the objects of light? Well, the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, day two, he creates sky and water. Well, who lives in the sky and water? Well, birds and fish. And all of this creates a giant kind of focal point. It funnels down on day seven, where if days one, two, and three are about the kingdoms, days four, five, and six are about the creatures, then day seven is about the creator king, Yahweh. You see, it's a different way of understanding these verses that point to the big idea that God, Yahweh, the one true sovereign God, is the one who existed before creation, who gave rise to everything that is and ever will be. Now, which of these views is correct? I'm not going to tell you this morning. Because the point is not that one of these is the right one and the others are wrong. The point is simply this. All three of these views are biblical. 
All three of these views are faithful ways of reading Genesis and understanding creation. Here at Lake Forest, we have a phrase that kind of governs our theology. This is true of our denomination. We say, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. For the Christian, that God created is an essential doctrine. How God created is a non-essential. Do you see that? Does that mean we shouldn't care? No, we should care. Does it mean we shouldn't study? No, we should absolutely study. But faithful, intelligent Christians can disagree on this sub subject, and they are all reading Genesis faithfully. All right. I hope that answered all your questions. I know it didn't, but I love that. I hope that that'll at least whet your appetite for reading a little bit more. Let's get to our fifth and final question. What if science actually strengthens our faith? What if God has given us science to actually strengthen our faith? You know, it's only been in the last century that scientists have come to grips with the notion that there was a beginning to the universe at all. Up until 100 years ago, the dominant view in science was that the universe had no beginning. It had just always been here. But today, thanks to new discoveries and images like this from the Hubble telescope, uh, scientists are learning new things about the origin of the universe. The dominant theory today is something known as the Big Bang. How many of y'all have heard Big Bang? Just, is this familiar? Okay, here we go. Uh, that the universe began as a, uh, a point of singularity. A single point is... And that everything that exists came from that one point. And, and you read about this, and I mean, it, it is just mind-boggling to get your mind around this whole Big Bang thing. Uh, Francis Collins, who is the head of the Human Genome Project uh, and is now director of the National Institute of Health, writes in his book, God and the Astronomers, that more than any other scientific theory, the Big Bang theory begs the question, who created all of this? If the universe began as a point of singularity, who created that and where did it all come from? And Collins, who is a follower of Jesus, argues that this question is not one that science can answer. It is a question of faith and faith alone. But there's something even more staggering than the Big Bang itself. Uh, the universe appears in the oddest ways, oddest ways, uh, to have been designed to support life. Uh, this is something that scientists call the anthropic principle. Uh, it's talked about a lot in the field of cosmology and physics, that our world, that our solar system has been fine-tuned, specifically dialed in to support life. Let me see if I can give you an example as we wrap up here. I'll do my best to describe this again. I'm not a scientist, but bear with me. About one millisecond after the Big Bang. How long is a millisecond? It's how long it takes me to get from the couch to the kitchen when I smell bacon. Right? That's a millisecond. Okay. About one millisecond, get this? One millisecond after the Big Bang, the universe cooled down, scientists tell us. It cooled down enough for what are called quarks and anti-quarks to condense out. And the way that that worked, as, as I understand it, is that any quark encountering an anti-quark would result in the complete annihilation of them both. And, and when they would do this, they would release a little photon of energy, a little light thing of energy. They kind of just cancel each other out. But as it turns out, as it turns out, there is not an equal number of quarks and anti-quarks. 
The symmetry that you would expect was off by just the tiniest bit that nobody could have predicted. It turns out that for every one billion antiquarks, there is one billion and one quarks. Did I say quarks and quarks? Quarks and antiquarks anti and quarks. In other words, there's one lonely little leftover quark for every one billion antiquarks. Now, why does this asymmetry exist? Nobody knows. But it turns out that if there had been an equal number of quarks and antiquarks, that they would have annihilated each other and the universe would never have come into existence. One little quark. Turns out that this one, one in a billion little leftover quark is what made it possible for there to be galaxies and stars and planets and the entire universe. And oh yeah, by the way, you. Gives a whole new meaning to those first four words of the Bible, doesn't it? In the beginning, God. But it's not only that. There are about 15 other constants, like the precise force of gravity, that are exactly what they have to be in order for life in our cosmos to exist. And it just turns out that there are 15 different constants whose values are exactly what they would have to be in order to support life. And oh, by the way, turns out that's exactly what they are. We opened with this line from the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, science will never be able to prove the existence of God. That's not its job. But science can produce in us a great sense of wonder. And wonder, my friend, gets us dangerously close to worship. So can I love science? and love Jesus? Asking for a friend. The answer is absolutely yes, you can. God has given you a mind. He's given you eyes and ears to study his creation. And when we give ourselves over to scientific inquiry of his creation, we are doing exactly the kind of work he intended us to do, to nurture our inner curiosity to let it grow in us a kind of wonder and to let that wonder lead us to a deeper sense of worshiping our creator. That's the purpose of his creation. That's the goal of scientific inquiry, that we might become worshipers. Let's respond to him now.